0: Amazon's Alexa is a virtual assistant meant to be utilized via voice rather than typing or clicking. It was initially released to the public in November of 2014 alongside the Amazon Echo smart speaker, Designated smart because it contained a microphone that allowed you to speak to Alexa through it, which in turn would allow the virtual assistant to play music, set timers, and buy things for you on the Amazon Marketplace, alongside other simple microphone-enabled powers. At the time of the Echo's release, that collection of other things was fairly sparse, a total of just 13 things all told. But like Apple's introductory iPhone model, that limited feature set was not meant to last. The hardware and the operating system it hosted was meant to be the basis of an entire ecosystem, a platform upon which other companies and individuals could build whatever they liked, utilizing Alexa and the many devices that hosted Alexa as portals through which to access their accounts and these skills, which is what Amazon calls apps made for Alexa-enabled devices. Google released their Google Assistant software two years later, in 2016, a direct competitor to Alexa in many ways, though with an arguably larger variety of access points right out the door due to Google's expansive reach through their many websites and apps and their Android and Chrome ecosystems. The Google Assistant worked in almost exactly the same manner as Alexa, and the consumer facing business model seemed to be similar as well. Sell a bunch of affordable, often at-cost, often quite well-designed, and beautiful pieces of gadgetry to users, and then assume those users will utilize those gadgets in ways that will help your bottom line. The hardware and virtual assistants were not themselves profit-seeking endeavors, in other words, but rather means of amplifying existing profit-seeking efforts, and perhaps getting ahead of the pack when it comes to future offerings that haven't become a thing yet. A lot of big companies were caught flat-footed by the smartphone revolution, which Apple and Google dominated through their app stores. So this move into audio-based virtual assistants could be seen as an initial pioneering effort to capture and claim a new market that won't fully be realized for years, but which, by investing early, you could stand a chance of owning almost entirely, just as Apple and Google own the world of smartphone software almost entirely between them. And these efforts to claim this voice-activated Wild West seemed, at first, to be a solid investment. 2016 in particular was a year of much enthusiasm for audio operating systems, with periodicals big and small, tech-enthused and behind the curve, swooning over the possibilities and impending wonders of the new audio-digital wonderland that awaited us. All of our new powers just a shout away. A few years later, though, today, in 2019, a lot of that hype would seem to have been unwarranted, thus far, at least. There was a great piece in The Information recently, entitled, Alexa, is voice still the next big thing after mobile? In which the author runs through stats that outline the current voice assistant situation, gets some commentary from folks behind and in front of the scenes, in that particular facet of the tech industry, and discusses where things might go next. In typical fashion, for the information, a periodical that does a lot of solid original reporting, some of the data isn't yet publicly available, and therefore not publicly confirmable. But if true, and they do have a good reputation for getting such things right, so I'm guessing they did their footwork on this, the numbers that they gleaned from the folks involved with these programs are pretty damning. For example... There was a lot of PR fanfare from Uber after they got on board with Amazon to create a relatively early Uber Alexa skill back in 2016. But according to sources at Uber, less than 0.002% of the more than 15 million Uber rides that Uber provides per day around the world are booked by voice. What's more, one of Amazon's biggest pitches for Alexa that you could buy things using your voice, you could refill your toilet paper supply, or buy some Sharpies, or shop for jeans, without having to look at a screen at all. That never really became a thing. According to people working within the Alexa program, only 2% of Alexa users have ever used it to buy something, and most of the people who tried using it to buy something once never did so a second time. Which, truthfully, is not all that shocking to me, on the anecdotal level. If you've ever tried to buy something in this way, using this type of device, it's probably not that shocking to you, either. Audio interfaces, as they exist today, just are not that good for most things. It's overall a neat idea, and I still hold out hope that someday, I will have a little wireless earbud that I can unobtrusively wear, through which I can get information about anything at all, wherever I want, whenever I want can intuitively access useful resources and services when I need them, and which I can use to take flawlessly transcribed notes that are saved to a server I control. But today's audio interfaces, though way, way better than what existed even five years ago, are still incredibly imperfect, to the point where, for many purposes, they're more frustrating than helpful. They misunderstand you constantly, 50% of the time or more, if you have an accent that has not yet been accounted for by the embedded voice recognition software. They connect you to a store that is optimized for visual exploration, not vocal exploration. And they offer up literally millions of skills of audio apps that are often just simplified or near-useless versions of something that exists on another device in some more usable, convenient shape. It's not that these devices are not good at anything. User research shows that people who use them the most actually use them several times a day for setting timers, asking about the weather, and listening to music. But, well, my parents have an Echo, and even when I'm visiting them and sitting there in the same room with the device, I often find it's easier and less obtrusive to just check the weather on my phone, which I and many people, I think, have at hand throughout the day. Through a weather app... I can get all kinds of information very easily with just a tap or a swipe. I would have to struggle to figure out how to access any of that additional data via these audio interfaces, if that information was indeed available via that skill in the first place. Amplifying these practical issues are the philosophical privacy-related complexities that have become inflamed in the post-2016 age as we learn more and more about how much access we've accidentally or incidentally handed over to increasingly wealthy and powerful tech companies. In the backlash that has resulted from this dawning realization, more people are asking themselves not just what does this thing do for me, but also whether that utility, that benefit, is worth the cost. Is it worth being able to ask this device about the weather instead of taking out my phone if this device is listening to me all day every day? Can I trust that this big company that sorts and scans my voice interactions to train their software will never use it for malignant purposes or won't accidentally allow that data to fall into the hands of someone who will? We find ourselves in a situation, in other words, in which voice assistants, particularly Alexa, but also Google Home and smaller equivalents, are being built into everything, from mirrors to toilets to all of our little pocketable gadgets. But the gadget and mirror and toilet-buying public is already either suspicious or nonchalant enough about such offerings, that these supposed upgrades are either not worth paying for, or looked upon as flaws, as hindrances, as attributes in a product that are actively avoided. Now I still personally hope to have that perfect little earbud of my dreams someday, but none of the voice assistants of today give me anything close to what I'm looking for. And in fact, the dumb earbuds, the ones without voice assistance, are preferable to me at the moment. Why pay more for a device that primarily or secondarily benefits the company from which I purchased it? Why should I allow them to collect my data through these audio interfaces rather than grabbing something cheaper that doesn't follow me around and phone home with my details? Navigating around this trend is not a huge deal for me. But this is a troublesome situation for companies like Amazon that have invested so much in this ecosystem. Their intended business model was predicated on getting this software into as many hands, into as many ears as possible, even selling their Echo hardware at cost at times to keep prices low so that they could increase their profit margins elsewhere. Which, in practice, means creating new spaces where they can track user behaviors and potentially create new channels through which ads can be delivered. Both of these priorities tie back to advertising, but while the latter is about selling ad space, creating little audio billboards upon which they can plaster callouts for hawkers wanting to sell us their wares, the former is about increasing the value of their existing ad space. Amazon and Google learning more about us so they can take that data, combine it with other things they know about us, so they can better target us with ads they believe will be more likely to get us to buy things. And that's especially beneficial to them because a targeted ad is more valuable than an untargeted ad, which is a fancy way of saying that the more they know about us, the more they can make from us. And you can view this as a fair enough type of play, where they provide us with useful things, and in exchange, they get to track us when we use those things, while profiting from the data collected. Or you could see it as one more invasion of privacy, to pile atop all the others that we endure day in and day out. Both are legitimate perspectives, but I think they were assuming more people would ignore those downsides when they were building this business model. Because in 2016, the majority of the public was far less aware of privacy-related issues than they are today, largely for reasons beyond Amazon and Google's control. This is a much bigger shift and one that includes both of them, but which is nowhere near limited to them. So at the moment, virtual assistant-based ecosystems Those would-be audio operating systems are still popular in the sense that the devices are selling. They've purportedly sold more in the first half of 2019 than in the first half of any other year, actually. And customers have bought over 100 million Alexa devices, all told. But usage seems to be low, down even from the lows of last year. And folks aren't using them for the things that the creators of the software expected. Timers, yes. Shopping, no. As a result, the business models currently in play would seem to be unsustainable, lacking some major shift in user behavior or some killer app that justifies all the investments that have been made up to this point. Part of why this audio interface downswing is so interesting is that it stands in contrast to what's happening in the world of audio more broadly. Music streaming services are flourishing, and radio stations have held up much better than the shift to digital numbers implied a few years back. Folks are still listening to their local stations for a variety of reasons. But what I want to talk about today are two portions of the non-music, non-radio audio world that are doing spectacularly well monetarily, and which seem to be hitting an inflection point, a transition phase that could have a major impact on how we listen and what we listen to. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled Have We Hit Peak Podcast? With the subtitle, If Past Experience Cough Blogs Is Any Indication, A Shakeout Is Nigh. This piece, which was only published a few days before the day I'm recording this, has already, in that short time, received a huge amount of pushback. Some of which is probably quite productive, some of which is almost certainly not, and then some of which is actually borderline abusive, which is interesting based on the context, but also unfortunate, because pylons of this kind can cause a lot of damage, and the people causing that damage seldom seem to realize that there are real human consequences to their public shaming. The framing of the piece itself, though, is part of the catalyst for that abuse, because it orients a discussion of the world of podcasting around the experiences of a very small sub-niche of the industry, that of people who start podcasts, assuming their show will make them famous or help their personal brand, but who then stop, after a few weeks, when their efforts do not immediately get them book deals or make them massively wealthy due to mattress or underwear sponsorships. Which, based on the research available, which isn't a lot, but which is something, is a thing that happens in statistically significant numbers. A lot of people start podcasts for a variety of reasons, and then stop soon after, before they've published their eighth episode most frequently, according to the numbers that we do have. Just like with blogs, a technology to which podcasts are often compared because of their ease of use, ostensibly free cost of entry, and the potentially wide dissemination for one's work that they offer, A lot of people are hopping onto podcasts as a platform, not because they're in any way inclined toward audio as a medium, toward the world of podcasts as a subculture, or even because they necessarily listen to podcasts themselves. To many people, podcasts are the hot, new, burgeoning, mainstream opportunity, and as a result, podcasts are trendy and interesting and worth trying out. And many of those people who dip their toes in, who dabble for a few weeks before giving up, will then leave once it's clear that yes, the cost of entry is low, but the work required to make a name for themselves within an increasingly crowded space will be much higher than they are willing to spend in terms of time, energy, and resources. That premise sets the tone for this piece, which opens with a discussion of one such would be famous, would be wealthy start then stop podcaster. And it has led to a lot of ridicule and harassment for the woman who is featured because of those assumptions that she had. But to be clear, the backlash is probably more legitimately aimed at the Times for how they framed this piece. Now, I don't personally think abuse is warranted in this kind of situation to begin with, but I mean, she was interviewed for this piece and almost certainly had nothing to do with the framing of it. The Times, on the other hand, decided to present a scenario that was written as if it was representative of an entire industry, which is a big part of why many people got so riled up about it. So if you're going to criticize, keep your criticisms productive and very importantly, make sure that they are aimed in the right direction. Part of the reason this piece has caused such a stir though, beyond many within the world of podcasting feeling that it was a gross mischaracterization of their maturing field, is that the podcasting industry is in the midst of a massive growth spurt. Experts from media, from finance, from tech and beyond are proposing that this moment might represent an inflection point for the medium. Due to the large increases in listenership around the world, the widespread attention podcasts are garnering, even amidst well known operators who typically work within other mediums, and due to the massive influx of new investment in this space by podcast world sophisticates, but also by entities that could really put their money anywhere, but who have, for a variety of reasons, decided to turn their collective attentions toward podcasts at this moment. In other words, podcasting seems to be growing up. And having someone else come in and define what podcasting is from the outside, incorrectly by many podcasters' estimates, but also just really not in a particularly flattering light. That's led to a lot of hackle-raising and angry muttering on social media, in blogs, and yes, on podcasts that are discussing this Times piece. Now that bit of industry gossip laid out, let's take a step back and talk about what's happening in the world of podcasting right now how podcasting is overlapping with another similar but distinct industry, and discuss how this influx of attention and resources might change the field, for better and for worse, in the coming years. Podcasting, as an industry, as I mentioned, is maturing at a rapid pace, and I say that not in the holistic sense, though it's absolutely maturing holistically as a medium, as an art form, as a means of storytelling and communication and technology as well. But right now I'm using mature industry in the economic sense, meaning it's beginning to pull in more resources, and thus beginning to be taken more seriously as a vehicle through which money can be earned and customers can be reached. Hence this new round of additional resources. Where there's attention, there are entities wanting to get themselves a piece of that attention. Before I start listing podcasting numbers, a big caveat about these sorts of stats. Many of them are self-reported, and many are based on numbers gathered from certain platforms, shows of a certain size or category, or those that are otherwise non-representative of the world of podcasting as a whole. So while these numbers are useful, because we've been using mostly the same sorts of imperfect numbers for a while, and therefore can see the changes in those imperfect numbers over time, They're still imperfect, and very often point at trends in one genre in particular, or among shows with a certain number of listeners, rather than being indicative of what's happening in the podcasting world overall. That said, there's somewhere around 750,000 podcasts available through podcasting platforms, like Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Google Podcasts and so on, and there are over 30 million episodes available from those 750,000 shows as of June 2019. The podcasting platform Blueberry, which puts out pretty solid stats on a fairly regular basis, says that only 19.3% of existing podcasts published a new episode between March and May of 2019, which lines up with other data produced by Edison, Nielsen, and Statista that indicates somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of those 750,000 podcasts that exist are still active. Active in this case meaning that they have not been cancelled and they have not finished up, an important distinction, as there are a lot of limited-run shows out there that are not meant to continue in perpetuity, and while they are not considered active, they also were not cancelled or dropped. And as such, they are not data points, indicative of what's called pod fade, a term that was coined in 2015 to refer to the purported tendency of podcasts to disappear due to lack of attention or interest from audience members or those producing them. Rumors of the podcasting industry's death aside, though, rumors that have been popular linkbait material since the early 2000s, most of the numbers here are looking pretty rosy. 51% of the U.S. population has listened to a podcast at some point, and regular podcast listeners listen to an average of seven shows per week. Over 30% of the United States population listens to at least one podcast each month, And this is a particularly interesting way of framing this data, I think, especially because of how many smart speakers exist in homes these days, even if they're not being used the way Amazon and other companies want them to be used. About 50% of all homes play podcasts every month. So someone in half the homes in the United States is playing at least one podcast each month, which means even the non-podcast listeners in the family may hear podcasts at times. About 22% of the U.S. population listens to podcasts every week, which is up from 17% in 2018. And this is a little surprising to me. 49% of podcast listening is done at home, whereas 22% is done while driving, 11% done at work, 4% apiece while working out or while riding public transportation, and about 10% is spread between just walking around or doing some other type of activity. Podcast listening is strongly associated with smartphone usage. There's been a 157% increase in listenership on smartphones since 2014, whereas the increase on computers, tablets, and other devices have been comparably meager, up 10-50% to during the same period. Podcast listenership is also associated with higher-than-average consumption of certain types of highly branded products like bottled water and cereal and podcast listeners are statistically more enthusiastic than average users of social media. So be aware that you are a desirable audience to reach, so there's plenty of rationale for the influx of ads in the podcasting space. In the U.S., 54% of the measurable podcasting audience uses iOS devices, so iPhones and iPads and such, while 43% is on Android devices. A whole 3% is on other sorts of devices, which is actually more than I would have assumed, based on the dominance of those two main mobile operating systems in this space. Podcast listeners are, on average, more likely to subscribe to streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime, which, again, part of why those of us who listen to podcasts are a desirable audience is that we are more difficult to reach with traditional TV or radio marketing messages. This is a big part of why the United States-based podcast revenue is expected to reach $1.6 billion by 2020. Now, a lot of those stats are from the United States podcast audience and are not necessarily representative of the rest of the world. Podcasts are being produced and consumed all over the planet. Looking at my stats, for instance, personally, I know I've got listeners in Greenland and Russia and Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Zambia, Brazil, and Japan alongside the relatively larger markets of the US, Canada, Australia, the UK. I've got at least a few hits in just about every country in the world, I think. So even a very medium-sized show like this one has a fairly broad reach through this medium. But what makes those currently larger podcasting markets large is partially the infrastructural support that helps make monetization feasible. Here in the U.S., we've got gobs of companies looking to market to this desirable smartphone-centric media streaming demographic, and as a result, ad revenue is flooding into the podcast industry. This doesn't mean that it's any easier to succeed as a podcaster in the U.S., of course, but it does mean that it's a lot more likely that if you put in the time and the effort, there will be opportunities of some kind that will allow you to potentially make a living from it, eventually, in the U.S., The potential for that kind of outcome is far smaller in places where most people don't know what a podcast is, and in places where advertisers wanting to reach such audiences through currently non-standard mediums are in short supply. I mentioned that the U.S. podcasting industry is predicted to reach $1.6 billion in revenue, and that's interesting because as developed as this space is in the United States, and it is arguably far more developed stateside economically than in most other countries, the overall value of the industry is still quite small compared to the podcasting industry of China. In China, podcasting already today, in 2019, is purported to be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $7 billion. Part of the reason for that vast disparity seems to be due to the difference between what podcast means in China versus what it typically means elsewhere. In China, the podcasting industry is made up of a combination of paid subscription services and shows that are a bit more like libraries of serialized audiobooks. There was a great marketplace piece on what they call the FOMO-based podcast industry in China back in September of 2018, and I'll link to that in the show notes if you're curious, in which they interview folks involved in the industry on the creation and consumption end, and it's really very interesting to see the difference in their perception about these sorts of shows. Now they do have ad-funded shows in China, like those that exist elsewhere, but many people there consider these to be more entertainment-focused and superficial, instead opting to pay for premium shows, because they believe the paid shows will be more practically valuable. And that's a big distinction here. Many of the people who listen to podcasts in China seem to do so because they perceive it to be a method of self-improvement and self-education. Rather than it being a pastime, something to distract themselves with while doing something else that doesn't require their full attention, this market is built for people who see podcasts as something more akin to a collection of university lectures. And the idea is that the university lecture that they are not paying for is probably just trying to sell them something, while the one that they pay for may help them make more money, may help them learn marketable skills, may help them get ahead. The FOMO, the fear of missing out component here, is that many people participating in the highly competitive Chinese urban job market perceive any possible advantage as one worth investing in, and that even if they don't utilize it, someone else will, perhaps everyone else will, and they will be left behind. They will not be competitive anymore, and therefore will not be able to maintain their status quo, their status within society as a valuable, treasured member of society. So they'd better buy some pretty good podcasts to help them get that leg up. It's a fascinating perspective, and though I think there is some of that in other countries too, but I can see how that type of value proposition, more broadly, would position podcasts as something more valuable, more of a luxury item, as a product or service that people tend to pay for. Compared to the utility or commodity, they often seem to be elsewhere in the world, where ad-supported is the most common funding model. Let's use that distinction as a segue into another facet of the larger audio-related world that I think is worth discussing a bit that of audiobooks. Figures released by major book publishers show that around 20-25% to of their revenue came from audiobooks in 2018, though print and ebooks remain far more popular. About 9 out of 10 books sold are print or ebooks, while just 1 in 10 is an audiobook. That contrast gives a good idea as to why audiobooks are beneficial on the financial end, though as just 10% of their sales in a single format can account for something closer to a fourth or a fifth of their total revenue. These numbers are a significant bounce from previous periods, with most large Western publishers reporting increases in audio sales of around 20-40% to over the course of 2018. And though that's not the highest percentage gain ever for some of them, it does continue an almost 7-year trend of double-digit year-over-year growth. So this isn't a flash-in-the-pan-out-of-nowhere sort of blip. It's a long, steady surge with impressive numbers that are overshadowing those of other formats, even if those other formats continue to have way larger overall sales numbers. There are many theories as to why people are glomming onto audiobooks the way that they are, ranging from a relative lack of focus of the kind required to sit and stare at a book and its pages for hours on end, to the nostalgic ease that we feel when we have someone else read to us, compared to reading in our own brains. The theory that I find most compelling, personally, is that we now have a greater capacity to relatively easily fill the previously unfilled moments in our lives with little bits of audio, in a way that doesn't interrupt the other things that we're doing, and in a way that at times makes us more productive, or perhaps just makes us feel more productive. Either way, the sales numbers are increasing, and the market for audiobooks of all genres is growing, feeding the variables that then catalyze more growth, leading to a beneficial cycle. More sales equals more investment in making audiobook versions of books, and more reliable and well-produced audiobook formats means more sales. Even in the US and similar markets, though, well outside of China's audio market, we're seeing a lot of cross-pollination and silo-breaking when it comes to audiobooks and podcasts. Amazon's audiobook subbrand Audible, has been experimenting with exclusive shows available only to Audible customers, and for a while, those premium shows were essentially just podcasts that were kept behind a paywall. The nature of these shows has since been refined, so that they're more like short audiobooks, but some of the original content produced for this purpose were, in essence, just podcasts produced by an audiobook company, presented as a bonus to customers who they assumed would like such things. Here are customers who enjoy listening to stuff throughout their day, so let's give them more stuff, even if the format isn't precisely the same as what we typically offer, what they typically pay for. There's a certain logic to that way of thinking, and it's worth keeping in mind as we consider what might happen next in these spaces, both of which are growing, and both of which are growing perhaps due to some of the same variables that are changing our habits, so that we have more time for information and stories delivered via such mediums or perhaps due to our willingness to change our own habits in order to carve out more time for this kind of engagement, communication delivered via audio. It's interesting, given this overlap, this somewhat generalized enthusiasm for audio-based entertainment, which runs up against the continued enthusiasm for music of all sorts, even as the business models and devices through which we access that music changes over the years, It's interesting that these smart devices, these Echoes and Google Homes, are not more popular. On the surface, at least, they would seem to be of a kind, to be part of the same audio innovation that's resulting in boom-time numbers for industries that have existed for a while, but which have not always been appreciated on this scale. When we get into the specifics, though, I think the distinctions become a little more clear. For one, audio content is distinct from the devices through which we consume audio content. Most people who listen to podcasts and audiobooks have smartphones and computers that serve as decent enough speakers or outlets for headphones, and the pitch of buying an additional device, one that is in some ways even less capable for that purpose, because it's plugged into the wall, or because it blasts the sound to everyone within hearing distance, rather than keeping it snugly and less obtrusively in your ears and your ears alone. There's just not an obvious benefit there for most people. On top of that... Although these speakers are often positioned and branded as smart speakers, what they really are in practice are lightly concealed microphones. They serve as speakers just fine, but their real value proposition, the thing that makes them ostensibly smart, is the microphones that they contain. And that proposition is often more valuable for the companies that make and sell them, the companies that are able to use them to soak up information about us, than they are for us. I can't help but wonder if this realization is part of what stimulated a recent uptick. In podcast industry investment from players that have long had advantages in this space, but have not until just recently decided to actually do anything about it. One audio path closes, so they re-aim their dollars at another potential inroad with a similar audience. Spotify, for instance, recently spent hundreds of millions of dollars to buy up podcast network Gimlet Media and short-form podcast platform Anchor. Giving them a well-known brand and a well-trafficked catalog of content, alongside a stockpile of assets that will allow them to build anything from a podcast-focused social network to an intuitive collection of tools that could allow their audiences to quickly and easily make their own podcasts. This comes after a two-year process, during which Spotify slowly began introducing podcasts on their, until recently, music-only streaming platform a move that has, in those two years, netted them the title of second-biggest podcasting platform overall. Higher-ups at Spotify have said in interviews that they plan to make more podcast-related acquisitions in 2019, and that they're planning to spend around $500 million to do so. The CEO of Spotify has said that podcast users spend almost twice the time that music listeners spend on the platform, and that in the near future... He thinks about 20% of all Spotify activity will involve listening to non-music content. While Spotify considers the beneficial blending of music and podcasts, Apple seems to be doing the same for music, TV, and audiobooks. The term podcast was actually originally coined by a journalist who was writing about audio broadcast methods that were ideal for use with the recently released at the time, back in 2004, the recently released iPod music player created by Apple. In the years since, though Apple created the centralized platform through which many of these broadcasts could be discovered and subscribed to, that platform was kind of allowed to exist, more than actively cultivated, and it flourished in some ways because of a sort of benign neglect, as much as it flourished despite it because Apple never stepped in to monetize podcasts, to put any kind of fee on their centralization service. It was just one part of their larger iTunes software, and it wasn't much of a hassle for them to keep it going, so they did. And the rest of the podcasting ecosystem sprung up around that central resource that simply existed, largely unmoving and reliable for years. Within the past handful of years, though, especially post-Serial, the show that arguably kicked off the mainstreaming of the podcast medium, alternative platforms and marketplaces for shows have emerged, most of them basing their own infrastructure on Apple's centralized stockpile of shows and metadata and reviews. This status quo has been maintained long enough that recent reports that Apple might be investing in exclusive podcast shows for their own network caught the audio world by surprise leading to a great deal of speculation about the specifics, but also as to how that larger space, that vast platform, that so much of the podcasting ecosystem has been built upon, might change as a consequence. Because remember, benign neglect is what led to the world of podcasting that we know today, in the portion of the world where ad-based revenue models are the most common and prominent, at least. And that world is, in part, defined by the fact that most podcasts are available, by default, for free. Listeners pay with their attention, as is the case with ads, or through donations or membership fees or by purchasing products or services offered by the hosts. But the medium itself has been relatively neutral, which is what has distinguished it from other similar fields, like audiobooks and music. As of the day I'm recording this, mid-July of 2019, this April story is still just a story. And though the source is legit, it comes from a Bloomberg exclusive, it still might be incorrect or incomplete, in one of many meaningful possible ways. That said, Apple is... In the process of spinning its former iTunes-based offerings into their own focused channels, with TV and podcast and book-specific apps set to land in their Mac and iOS devices by default in the near future. And since they find themselves increasingly in competition with companies like Spotify for audio, with Amazon for book and other media sales, with Google for devices and apps and gobs of other things... It makes sense that they might enter this space, just as they've recently entered the TV and film and music spaces in an assortment of ways, with content that helps set their offerings, their marketplaces and platforms and services, apart from the many other quite similar offerings being promoted by other massive tech and media entities. So this may be a big deal, and it may be nothing. It may be that throughout the majority of the podcast industry, the default freebie mode of listening continues to flourish, but the better-funded cable TV-style premium offerings begin to slowly suck the air out of the room, and the incentives are recalibrated so that, like network TV, the stuff that is not paid for directly in some way ceases to be taken as seriously, despite having a decently large reach. It may also be that Apple pulls the rug out from under the existing setup and redefines the space in their favor, making it trickier to listen to anything listed on their network, ad-based or paid for, on anything that is not an Apple device. This is unlikely, but theoretically possible, and it would seriously alter the podcasting landscape overnight, leading to a balkanized industry defined by walled gardens, at least until somebody else could set up a new, neutral platform for such things that everybody could agree to use. What seems likely to me, and a lot of the commentators writing about Apple's possible next moves in the world of podcasting. Is that they will create their exclusives and so will everyone else and we'll begin to see like in the world of video streaming a slow but steady fracturing of the industry an industry that contains content superficially similar to what's available for free elsewhere there are plenty of shows and movies available that you don't have to pay to watch after all we will see the paid side of that though break up into these many spheres of influence as is currently the case with Netflix and Disney Plus and HBO Go and Apple's TV offerings and Amazon's Prime services and the new Netflix-like entrants that have been announced by seemingly every single media network in existence, it's worth remembering that the video-on-demand space is flourishing even as it is breaking apart, and that means that there can be benefits to this kind of split, mostly as a consequence of all that competition. But there are also negative consequences, mostly related to the suffocation of smaller players in an ecosystem that becomes increasingly dominated by larger beasts. Suffocated by a lack of money, but also in terms of where the infrastructural support goes. The biggest shows and networks will tend to get more press, more front page features, more overall attention than the smaller non network, non pay to access offerings. It's also worth remembering that at the end of the day, there's just a finite amount of time. Available each day. And if there are 30 Game of Thrones scale productions to indulge in within the world of podcasting at any given moment, what chance do the smaller, less well funded, less well promoted shows have? It would be amazing to be able to choose from that many well made creations, obviously, but that could also lead to a situation in which entrenchment begins to hold and certain types of ideas and gatekeepers flourish while others struggle to be heard, to create, to be capable of funding their work because it doesn't fit within the confines of what makes a hit in an industry in which only hits, defined by a specific collection of metrics, will do. This might be the moment right before the moment, when podcasting's quaintness, its underdog status, disappears. Which could be a bittersweet moment for those of us who love the industry. It's amazing to see it grow up, to see more attention paid to something that we love so much— But there's also warranted worry that in growing up it will change. Not necessarily just for the good or the bad, but change, nonetheless. In mostly neutral ways, probably. The professionalization of any space tends to do this, regardless of the space in question. And there will be winners and losers in the wake of any evolution, any transition. Swinging back around to that piece in the times, I think a lot of the evolution that will happen here over the next few years, but which is arguably already happening today, too, has to do with the labels that we have traditionally applied to podcasting, and how those labels are merging with other labels. People now have reason to ask what an audiobook should be. Who can listen to what? How money should be made within this industry? If money should indeed be made at all in this industry, who gets to speak to which audiences, and things of that nature? It's an uncomfortable discussion to be having. Branches are beginning to fork out from the main trunk of the podcasting world as a consequence. Splintering off into new things. Maybe things that will bear the same podcasting label, but maybe things that will need to come up with new terms to define. Podcasts that are behind paywalls, podcasts that you pay to access, like those in China, or those previously provided only to Audible members. Maybe different terms for those that are listener supported than those that are created by big networks. And other terms entirely for those that are limited episode series and those that are just a chat between friends type of show. There are so many ways to carve this industry up, and I think the point that we're at now, as the money starts to roll in, is realizing that our previous distinctions maybe made sense for a long while, but perhaps don't have the resolution, the clarity, the specificity that we'll need moving forward into that new, impending reality. And for people who define themselves using these terms—podcaster, author, podcast listener, audiobook reader— We don't yet have the terminology required to describe what we do, what we make, what we consume, what we support, or the hows and whys of all of these things. And that's difficult too, not having labels that fit anymore, or that we feel someone else is maybe taking from us, or adjusting around us, resizing them until they begin to chafe. Recognizing all of this and this potential for change and evolution does not necessarily make those changes any easier to tolerate, to deal with or even to notice necessarily as they happen. But it does make it more likely that we will find niches that we enjoy as they emerge. And it may even incentivize us to play a role in defining what those niches are, what new powers these tools grant us, and how this type of media can continue to evolve and branch out in the future. (music) The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, and it's by the author Carlo Rovelli. This is a very short book. I listened to it as an audiobook, and I think it was about two hours long, something like that. But I've read longer books by this author as well. One in particular that was about time, was incredibly illuminating and incredibly well written, just a true mind-bending joy to indulge in. And this book was no different, despite being shorter. It is essentially what it says it is in the title. It is seven very quick lessons about physics, but these lessons are engrossing, and I suspect they would be engrossing whether or not you are interested in science at all. If you'd like to sit and engage with a collection of very thoughtful, very interesting physics ruminations, this is definitely worth your time. That book, again, is called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by the author Carlo Rovelli. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere else. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.